Uh, I'm Richard Sennett. I teach at the LSE, and I'm very happy to welcome you uh, to the Michael Oakeshott Lecture for 2011. And these lectures are meant to present to the LSE uh, community intellectuals who have strayed into political life. And they've included in the past David Willits, Yashka Fisher, Jose Serra, and tonight's speaker, Oliver Ledwood. Uh, the lectures are named in honor of Michael Oakeshott, a legendary political thinker at the LSE, who often pondered the role of intellectuals in politics. Oakeshott himself was a doubter of legislative politics and of political programs, a doubt which came from his deep-seated fear of overly rationalized government. He feared that intellectuals who tend to rationalize professionally were likely, therefore, to become the victims of the rough and tumble of political life. Now, if you've attended these lectures in the past, you'll know that the Oakshot lecturers have not succumbed to their wounds, and instead all have affirmed the dignity of thinking in a world of often blind action. And certainly that affirmation applies to tonight's uh, Oakshot lecturer, Oliver Letwin. He is a deep part of the LSE family. Both of his parents uh, taught here, uh, his father in political science and his mother in philosophy. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, he is linked uh, uh, personally to Michael Oakeshott by being uh, now the de facto administrator of Michael Oakeshott's literary estate. And uh, he, as a public figure, he's linked to the theme of the Oakeshott lectures by his own intellectual work. In such books as Emotion and the Unity of the Self, which has just been reprinted, and it's a snip, uh, reprinted by, uh, uh, well worth buying, it's just re reprinted by Rutledge, uh, Privatizing the World and the Purpose of Politics. Uh, he strayed early on into politics, managing at Cambridge uh, to uh, be part of the Fabian Society, or at least attend their meetings to the Liberal Club uh, at, uh, at Cambridge. Uh, and perhaps it's appropriate that he give his lecture tonight, therefore, in this room, the Shaw Library, which contains the founding documents of Fabian Socialism, uh, works by... Uh, Beatrice and Sidney Webb, as well as by Shaw and Bertrand Russell. I suspect that Oliver will not be speaking in their name, for instead, as you know, he has had a long and distinguished career in the Conservative Party, serving variously as Shadow Home Secretary and Shadow Sec uh, Chancellor, and now as Minister of State for Government Policy in the Cabinet Unofficially as well as officially, he's long been interested in and played an active role in environmental issues. Now, I should say that due to the press of his government duties, Mr. Letwin will not be able to stay with us for the more usual uh, leisurely format of the Oakshaw uh, uh, lecture events. But of course, he will invite questions from you after his talk 
And as usual, I will be a nannyish, that is to say, Fabian chair in managing your questions, if not his responses. So without further ado, I ask you to join me in welcoming Oliver Leplin. Thank you very much. Um, can I just check, first of all, can you, can you hear me at the back? You're quite a long way back. It is, does your raised hand mean yes? Raise your hand if so. Yes. Thank you. Um, would you raise it again at a later stage if I, uh, if I fall off and you can't hear me? Um, uh, well, first of all, I should say it's extremely pleasant to, to be, uh, I say, back at LSE. I've never actually studied at LSE. I've never taught at LSE. Uh, but um, one way or another, uh, for the reasons you, you eloquently sketched, I, uh, I feel somehow or another associated with the LSE. Um, and uh, it's always a pleasure to come, come uh, here. Um, and uh, I, I was also pleased to, to, uh, to say something in honor of Michael Oakeshott because um, the associations that I have uh, with uh, the LSE are entirely uh, woven into the fabric of the associations that I have with, with Michael. Um, uh, when I was um, uh, first conscious of the world uh, as a very small um, child, uh, he was a, uh, a figure, um, uh, of course, uh, ineffably uh, distant in, uh, in uh, distinction and uh, at age, but, uh, but he was there. And um, uh, he, um, he had, for me, as, as, as a child, an astonishing uh, charm. Um, uh, he seemed completely unlike uh, any of the other uh, figures who uh, who uh, were uh, were around the, the house, um, uh, either intellectuals or or, uh, or teachers or others, um, because um, he uh, he had a, an extraordinarily self-effacing uh, and hesitant manner, uh, and. Um, and a sort of whimsicality, which which um, which was simply enchanting if you were very young. Um, and um, I, I recall, for example, with immense delight, the uh, the times that I used to spend uh, at his uh, his cottage, uh, Langton Travers, near uh, near Swanage, in, in Dorset, very near actually to where I now find myself as. Uh, uh, living as, uh, as the uh, parliamentary representative of, of, of the western bit of Dorset. And uh, uh, it, it, Michael's cottage was not large enough to accommodate uh, both my parents and me, uh, uh, despite my then small size. Uh, but but he, had a, uh, he had a wooden shack in the uh, garden, which was very beautifully done up um, uh, with uh, little curtains and... Um, uh, made of um, a kind of wood that had a resin to it that smelt particularly delicious in the crisp um, air of the morning when one woke up. And uh, Michael very carefully had brought a little, uh, a little electric heater. I ask you to think of an England of the very early 1960s, 1960, 61, 62, that sort of time, uh, when, uh, when houses were very typically still pretty cold. Uh, uh, this was an enormously warm little um, nook, and um, uh, there was a particular pleasure in visiting Michael there, uh, not least because he introduced me at, at that stage to the game of Ma Yong, which I 
uh, hate. Um, uh, um, but, um, but playing it with Michael was entirely different from playing it with any other person, adult or child, because um, he had um, developed the concept, which I'm going to refer to in a moment, of adverbial rules um, so uh, subtly as to apply to himself in the case of Ma Yong. And uh, he refused to have anything to do with particular kinds of Ma Yong peace. Uh, winds, for example, he regarded as, I think, beneath contempt. I, I don't know why, uh, but for some reason they were. And it didn't take me long as a, a child, uh, wholly devoid of the subtleties of Michael's mind, to spot that this was a terminal weakness in his game and that I could absolutely infallibly win. Um, and I tried to explain to him that this was a weakness of his game, and um, he tried to explain to me why that didn't matter. It was more fun to play without these wins. And as you can tell from the fact I'm telling you this now, I have been puzzling about this for the last 50 years. Um, uh, there is something extraordinarily um, characteristic and charming about, about that and, and, and tells one a great deal about, about Michael. I, I want to say just one or two more words about him before I move on to his work and how it, it, it seems to me now. Um, uh, at a much later stage, um, 15 years later, uh, when I was an undergraduate in Cambridge, um, Michael uh, uh, occasionally would come up and uh, take me out to a, uh, a meal, um, sort of. Um, uh, I was, of course, a very impoverished student, um, and anybody offering to take you to a meal, let alone Michael, was a, a, a wonderful thing. Uh, but he, he had a penchant for the worst restaurant in Cambridge, and that took some doing at that time. Um, uh, and... Um, I won't name it, of course. Uh, <laughs> reasons of, of, of libel. Um, uh, but it was exquisitely bad. And um, incidentally, it's gone out of business now. So you, uh, um, uh, and there were, there were some dishes which were particularly bad, um, which I think had been on the menu since Michael had been at Keyes himself many, many years before. And um, uh, I'm telling you this story partly because of the um, simplicity which uh, it illustrates. So it, it never occurred to him in the least to worry about going into a restaurant. It was a very distinguished uh, figure by that stage of his life uh, that students regarded as uh, only bearable. Um, but also the, the cunning of the man, which I think was characteristic of his dealings actually at the school here. That I, I remember being told by various people that in his extremely quiet way he almost always got his own way in the government department. Uh, and so it was at this restaurant. He, he managed to persuade uh, the waitress to go and get the cook to cook something quite else that wasn't on the menu, which he'd established over many years was the only edible thing in that restaurant, <laughs> and which duly appeared. And um, uh, I tried subsequently on various occasions to repeat this. Exercise. I was never able to persuade the waitress myself or waiter to, to do this, but, but Michael knew, knew how. Um, and I, I suppose, apart from uh, the fact that I'm here and that he was here and that it seems sensible to say something about him, um, I suppose part of the reason I'm, I'm saying these things is because uh, the charm, and there was an extraordinary charm to the man, um, uh, I think is, is more than just the charm of the man. Uh, I think uh, it... it, uh, it percolates through the, the work 
Uh, and in fact, I think if I had to characterize his, uh, his distinctive uh, voice uh, uh, in the work, it would be by using the word charm. Uh, it's not uh, characteristic, it has to be said, of very many philosophical works, particularly very many modern philosophical works. Um, but it was true of Michael's work almost always, that it had real charm. And, uh, and in fact, I remember the first time that I was struck by that. Um, uh, I, was, uh, I was 13 at the time, and um, I found on uh, the bookshelves um, a, uh, an essay of his, <coughs> essay of his called um, The Voice of Poetry in the Conversation of Mankind. There may be people here who are familiar with it. It is, I think, one of the most beautiful essays in the language. And, uh, of course, I had very little understanding uh, of it at the time. Um, I certainly couldn't uh, conceptualize at all the sort of Hegelian epistemology that it discloses one way or another. But, but I, did, I did see that it was something. Um, I, could, I could sense that uh, something was being said of a, a rare kind. Um, and I think, actually, it was one of the... Uh, first moments which I began myself to be interested in philosophy, not because I understood it, but because I had some sense that it would be good to be able to understand it. Um, and uh, um, uh, I think it was, it was the charm um, that did it. Um, so I'm actually, from that point of view, profoundly grateful to him. Um, uh, uh, now, I think that the, the charm of the Work and the charm of the mind uh, uh, is part of the explanation for a very strange fact about Michael's uh, Michael's work and, and Michael's place in uh, in uh, uh, philosophy and, and in particular political philosophy. Um, and I should just at, at this moment diverge from my own story for a second to say that Michael was not, of course, only a political philosopher. Uh, I don't know that he would primarily really have thought of himself in that light even. Uh, he was deeply concerned with, uh, with epistemology and he was uh, deeply concerned with uh, the nature of uh, convention and language and, and, and of, of learning and uh, uh, of education and, and many other things besides. Um, uh, and indeed with the philosophy of action. Um, for him, this was not, uh, as anyone here who's familiar with his work will know, this was not a, uh, this was not a series of discrete things. Uh, these were, in his mind, uh, which was very capable of holding things together, uh, very much uh, uh, connected. And, uh, uh, and indeed, as his thought evolved through his life, uh, it evolved at all sorts of different levels. Um, nevertheless, it's, it's about him as a political philosopher that I want to... Uh, speak this evening, uh, and it's it's about him as a political philosopher from the standpoint of uh, a practicing politician. And you're right, incidentally, to say that Michael was not uh, was not an admirer of practicing politicians. Um, uh, in fact, I think I could also say that Michael was not an admirer of mine. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, uh, not least because I looked as if I was going to diverge into this ludicrous uh, occupation, in his view. Mm. But. Um, uh, but I think actually it is interesting to interest me anyway to reflect on on him and his political philosophy from the perspective of of practical uh, philosophy uh, practical action um, uh, 
he, um, he has a very strange position because um, there are enormously many people, I think increasingly many people, um, not just at the LSE but around the world, um, who are now taking an interest in his work. He wasn't terribly well known in his lifetime, um, though he was very well known to those who already admired him and uh, to uh, a range of politicians and indeed was uh, enormously admired by uh, uh, Keith Joseph and, and, and uh, Margaret Thatcher and many others. Um, uh, but, but I wouldn't say that he was a well-known figure in the sense of uh, Bertrand Russell or Wittgenstein or uh, someone of that kind. Um, uh, but now he is well-known, I think, uh, to those who are interested in, in political philosophy on quite a wide scale. Um, and in some sense or other, I think, has had a very significant influence. And yet, um, I think it's true that um, he hasn't had an effect of a precise kind in the way that uh, many others have. And there is some sense or other in which his work is tangential to the debates that go on. Um, uh, let me give you a, 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 an example to make my point. Uh, I suspect that everyone in this room um, and very, very many others in very many other similar rooms around the world know of the work of John Rawls. Um, uh, and there's, if, if, if you meet even a sort of undergraduate who's uh, read some um, bit of Rawls, uh, or maybe even never, never has read Rawls, but has heard someone give a lecture about Rawls, uh, he or she will quite quickly tell you what Rawls is about. No doubt Rawls is, uh, is something which annoyed Rawls immensely. But nevertheless, we all know that, that, that Rawls was somebody who had a view about what constituted justice, and this view was that, uh, that uh, what uh, advantage the least advantage was just, uh, and that the way you, you uh, conceptualize that was to imagine yourself behind a veil of ignorance, asking the question, uh, what would suit me if I was the least advantaged person in another society. And, I mean, actually, that's, that's a pretty small part of an enormous work. But, um, nevertheless, that is what Rawls is known for. And that is his contribution. And there are, I don't know how many uh, articles and uh, books and uh, talks and seminars and continue to be, uh, which in part, at least, focus on the question, was Rawls right about this? Is this the nature of justice? Uh, now, my experience is that there are no such discussions to speak of about Michael's uh, positions. I don't know of, uh, of any large uh, session uh, or any uh, uh, set of symposia which spend an enormous amount of time, uh, at least outside rarefied circles of Oakshottians, uh, discussing the particular thesis uh, uh, that Michael put forward. And... Um, I don't think that would in any way have distressed Michael instantly. I think he, he, uh, he rather hated that kind of thing. Um, uh, but, it, but it does raise the question, why is he so well known if, uh, if actually he hasn't been part of a sort of mainstream debate about the sort of things that tend to get debated uh, in what passes for political philosophy, sessions, seminars, lectures, debates, and so on. Um, and I think part of the answer to that is the charm. Um, 
I think there is, there's something which people find it very difficult to describe, but which they notice when they read his work, that they can see is somehow different and somehow superior. Um, uh, I think there's, however, another reason, and it's that that I really want to talk about this evening. Um, I think that the particular thing that Michael brought to uh, political uh, philosophy was uh, uh, the ability, precisely because he was not in the mainstream, to, um, to explore and then to convey an understanding of a set of questions which are not the mainstream questions. Um, uh, and I think this is very often, very typically, an enormously important service that gets performed by some of the deepest thinkers and that gets ignored by everybody else. Um, uh, and I want to give you an analogy for a second before I move back to the uh, next stage of my argument. Um, and the analogy is, is this. There's a, there is, of course, a vast literature. I'm sure there are people in this room who are infinitely more knowledgeable about it than I'm ever going to be, uh, about uh, uh, sort of the theory of practical politics. Pe people who write books about what happens in politics uh, in different countries at different times and so on, uh, as opposed to political philosophy. And I've noticed something about the relatively small selection of these books that I've read in a relatively small number of occasions when I've sat in seminars or whatever with people discussing those things. And that is that they are all, almost all, living in a very, very strange parallel universe um, because they talk about politics uh, in terms of constitutions and states and uh, regimes and uh, structures and uh, pressures and uh, international relationships and so on. And almost never, I find, is, is the term political party used. There are exceptions. But generally, political parties have sort of fallen out of uh, these descriptions. Um, uh, and in fact, if you, it's of most extraordinary uh, real practical importance, this, uh, because when the Iron Curtain fell and Central and Eastern Europe entered the light, uh, actually, the thing that mattered most was the capacity to form uh, political parties. Political parties are the fabric of a mature democracy. In the absence of political parties, you cannot have uh, a functioning democracy in a, in a uh, large modern state. Um, uh, and forming a political party is no mean feat of whatever disposition you are, whichever angle you're coming from, just actually forming it is difficult. And knowing how to keep one together is difficult. And uh, it's difficult enough, incidentally, in mature democracies where they've been going a long time. But to do it from scratch is incredibly difficult. Uh, and exactly this experience is now going on in the, as a result of the Arab Spring. But there's very little um, uh, by way of guidance about this that's uh, been developed. Very, there's very little study, very little understanding of what political parties are and how they come into being and what makes them strong and what makes them weak and what makes them last and what makes them disappear. Uh, there's a sort of disembodied air to a lot of the discussion of uh, practical politics. Well, I give you that analogy because I think it's sort of... Uh, uh, makes my point more vividly than I can make it about political philosophy. But, but exactly the same, I think, is true of the sort of mainstream of political philosophy. Um, 
there's a sort of disembodied character to it as well. Um, we hear a lot about rights, a lot about duties, a lot about justice. You hear about everything from natural law to dialectical materialism. There, and what do all these things share? They all seem to me to share the characteristic that they're enormously abstract. Um, they're terribly important um, and very interesting, but they're terribly abstract. And um, once you start down the road of talking about them, it tends to get more and more abstract, and uh, it may get more and more interesting too, if you're lucky, but uh, it moves further and further away from anything recognizable as how things actually really are. Uh, and, um, and I think it's sort of self-perpetuating. Um, uh, once you've started talking about rights and duties, you, it, it, it seems very odd to start talking about something more concrete. And my uh, first sort of proposition is that, that the importance of Michael's work lies in the fact that he draws our attention away from all those abstractions uh, towards uh, a, a very concrete question, which is the question of the character of the state. It's not a question about rights and duties. It's not a question about uh, natural justice. It's not a natural law. It's not a question about uh, uh, whether Marx was right or wrong. Uh, uh, whether the rules was right or wrong or anybody else um, it's a characteristic of the case in Michael's work that there's no discussion of anybody else um, uh, it's about the character of the modern state and that's simply a line of inquiry which isn't mainstream because uh, it isn't mainstream it isn't there uh, it was on one side it was something he wanted to pursue and uh, which I think it's incredibly important that we should consider and, uh, and I think that's the first great claim for Michael, that, that uh, he is asking a set of questions, quite regardless of the answers, which are very rarely, much too rarely, asked. Um, now, famously, uh, amongst the group of people anyway who are interested in his work, uh, his, his uh, crude version anyway of his answer to the question, what is the uh, character of the modern state, is, as I'm sure everyone in this room is very fully aware, uh, that it is a civil association and that it's to be distinguished from enterprise associations. And, and of course, what, what he meant by that was that uh, a state is not there as a group of people coming together with a substantive common aim, in his view, uh, but is instead a group of people who come together to live together under rules that enable them to live together. And the character of the modern state therefore becomes that it is enabling those people to settle a way of establishing the rules that will permit them to live together. Hence, the concept of the adverbial rule, the rule that doesn't tell you what to aim at, but tells you, if you are aiming at it on the way, uh, uh, how you can go about getting it, and how, in particular, you cannot go about getting it. Uh, you may or may not have an aim which may or may not make it convenient to murder me, but you can't murder me on the way to getting it. That's an adverbial rule, and it's a rule necessary for us to be able to live together. Uh, and it's distinct from the many, many uh, enterprise associations, in his view, uh, which are formed between the citizens in the state to pursue substantive aims, which may also, of course, have rules, but which are characterized by a common aim, which may be economic, maybe social, maybe cultural, maybe religious, maybe of many, many different kinds, 
but it's a common aim, and they're bound together by the aim, whereas the rules are ancillary. The state, on the, contrast, uh, on the contrary, in Michael's view, is characterized by the rules because that's the means by which people live together and has no aim beyond enabling people to live together. Uh, and my second proposition is that is a very interesting distinction. Um, and one which, you know, you'd be very hard-pressed to find anywhere else. Um, uh, and I think it's a very powerful distinction. Um, uh, but my third point is that it's a wholly inadequate distinction. So uh, what I want to argue about Michael's work is that it's enormously important because it draws our attention to a set of questions which otherwise might go completely unnoticed, and that it explores those questions in an extremely interesting way with an extremely interesting set of categories, but that ultimately the conclusions it comes to are quite wrong. Um, why do I think these categories are really very interesting? Um, well, in the first place because, in fact mainly because, um, I think when you start focusing on the difference between adverbial rules, rules that don't, aren't about trying to achieve an aim but are about how you go about doing whatever it is you may want to do, and on the contrary, uh, associations of people that are aiming at a common aim, once you start focusing on that distinction, uh, it draws your attention to a very important truth which is that uh, in politics, in practical politics, as it's practiced day in, day out, all over the world, um, in one form or another, uh, uh, one part of what is going on is quite different from another part of what is going on. And the first part is about uh, the continuing, to my mind, the ever-present, ultimately irresoluble debate, uh, between um, uh, freedom and security. Um, uh, uh, the debate which is ever-present in settling the boundaries of liberty and in adjusting the balances between what is permitted and what is not permitted. Uh, it, it cashes out in a welter, multiple, multiplicity of, uh, of uh, particulars. Just today in the House of Commons we were we were discussing a green paper on intelligence and security which seeks to set a very slight adjustment in these boundaries in relation to uh, the deployment of uh, sensitive uh, intelligence evidence in uh, civil trials. Uh, uh, come to the House of Commons or go to any other uh, legislature the world over and uh, you know, like as not, uh, the day you choose will be a day on which parliamentarians of one kind or another are debating exactly that sort of issue. I should say, sometimes, alas, infrequently, uh, there's a serious debate about that in the media as well. Um, uh, I suspect, actually, amongst our citizens, it's quite frequently debated. People, people uh, actually get quite exercised about these boundaries and uh, talk a lot about them, and very often, actually, extremely profoundly uh, uh, often more profoundly than we do as politicians, I think. So I don't think this is just the political group, so to speak, doing it on its own. I think, I think it's true that in a, in a, in a democracy, uh, there's a lot of discussion about the question of the balance. And that is a discussion about 
civil association. That is a discussion about where to set the adverbial rules. It isn't a discussion about what we're trying to get to collectively. Um, and I think it's really important to recognize that. I, think, I, I don't think you can understand what politics is from a philosophical standpoint or indeed from a practical standpoint without understanding that, that is a large part of the engagement. Uh, but actually, uh, there's another kind of thing which is constantly being debated, and that is about substantive aims. Um, it is about enterprise associations. Um, uh, uh, when we're discussing uh, health or welfare or schooling or policing, uh, uh, we're, we, are, we are discussing um, how to achieve substantive aims. When we're discussing the economy or the environment, we're discussing how to achieve substantive aims. And there is an entirely, as Michael pointed out, an entirely different kind of discussion to be had because it's a discussion about means. It's a discussion about strategies. It's a discussion about what works and what doesn't work. And it's a discussion also, if it's correctly conducted, about freedom, as is the civil association debate. But here, in the context of enterprise and enterprise association, it's a, it's a discussion about how you can achieve uh, the substantive aims at the least common substantive aims at the least possible sacrifice of individual liberty. Very different kind of discussion from the discussion about how you reconcile uh, liberty and security through the adjustment of the law. Um, and I think Michael's work brings out that difference more vividly than anything else had or has and I think it's a huge contribution. The reason why I think it's a wholly inadequate account of the modern state is, is I've already, I think, sort of entirely given away, which is that it seems to me patently obvious that uh, the discussion that constitutes the process of uh, any uh, mature liberal democracy is a discussion on both fronts. And the modern state is, like it or not, uh, I happen to like it, Michael didn't, but just as a matter of observation, is uh, about both. Um, it is in part a, a, a civil association. It is in part about trying to uh, set adverbial rules at the right point in the balance and to adjust it continuously. But it is also a common enterprise. The fact is that, that, uh, that we want our citizenry and every modern liberal democracy wants its citizenry to be educated, to be healthy, to be prosperous, and so forth. And uh, not, not just in the sense of setting adverbial rules which may enable the citizenry to be that, but modern, the modern state, uh, by the common consent of all its citizens, I think, of all political persuasions, actually wants to achieve these goals, wants, wants to take an active part in promoting those goals in many different ways. There are huge debates about how, but, but it is a common theme that it wants to do that and it sets about doing that. And uh, it doesn't make it less state-like, and it, it, it has proved remarkably resilient. So I think it's quite wrong to suggest that the modern state is characterized and can only survive as uh, a civil association. It is, on the contrary, actually uh, an interesting and important amalgamation of uh, a civil association and an enterprise association, or a multiple of enterprise associations. Uh, and... Um, uh, in the end, uh, actually, uh, efforts to avoid that conclusion turn out to be contortionist. Let me give you 
uh, a striking example. I was, I was thinking as I was contemplating uh, these remarks um, how Michael would have responded, other than uh, to suggest that it would probably be much better if I didn't talk about his work at all. Um, uh, I think he would have said, uh, well, actually, he would have put this as an inquiry because he was Michael, but nevertheless, he, he would have, what he would have intimated is that um, uh, actually many of these substantive goals uh, can be translated into, at the level of the state can be translated into adverbial rules. So let's take schooling. I, I never actually had this argument with him, but I'm sure he would have said um, that you can make sure that everybody has schooling, which he certainly would have admitted is a very good thing, uh, by having uh, an adverbial rule. You, know, you, you can choose your own school, you can do what you want and so on, but if you uh, 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 are forming a school, then here are the rules about what it has to uh, do and not do. Uh, as, as a school, I mean, adverbial rules, um, uh, mustn't be unpleasant to the children, mustn't employ people who would be unpleasant to so You can imagine a set of adverbial rules. And, and also, he might have said, you, you can make it compulsory because that is also an adverbial rule. You can, you, you, you can choose whether you bring up children or you don't bring up children, but if you're bringing up children, they have to go to school. Um, but I say this is a contortionist attempt to rescue the thesis, the, the false thesis, that the state is characterized by being purely a civil association uh, because the truth is that, first of all, the state isn't just saying you have to educate your children. It's saying all sorts of things, doing all sorts of things which are positively promoting uh, 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 people being educated. But also, actually, if it were the case that it's an adverbial rule still, if what it's doing is actually, while having the form of an adverbial rule, to achieve a common substantive goal, well then the whole distinction which he's trying to set up between uh, a civil association and enterprise association collapses. Um, and uh, uh, therefore I don't think you can rescue the thesis in that way. Um, I think you have to accept that actually his, uh, his understanding of the two forms of action is deep and important and we need to understand politics in the light of that uh, dual characterization. But his attempt to argue that one is the real state and the other is something which ought to be going on in the private realm or the social realm um, uh, just doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, hold water. Um, uh, and I take from this something which, comfortingly, I think is a, is a very Oakshottian conclusion. And my conclusion is that sometimes in political philosophy it's much more, it matters much more to be uh, wrong in the right way than it does to be right. Um, I, I think the fact that I think he's wrong doesn't matter in the least. Uh, what matters is that because of the way he asked the question and because of the way he burrowed away at the answer, he's come up with, I think, a very deep and very true analysis of... Uh, what the forms of action are in the modern state and uh, the fact that, the, that on top of that is the thesis that I don't believe really doesn't matter at all. Um, well, I hope that those observations will uh, prompt some, uh, some interest. Um, I apologize, incidentally, to anyone that thought I was actually going to be talking about uh, modern British politics and what we should do. Um, I didn't think it was at all an appropriate thing to do in this, uh, this setting. Thank you. <laughs>